So we are in this series on First Corinthians, and um, and oftentimes when you, you know when I'm taught or Andrew's taught or Chris is taught, we're, we're all we're all taught to to look for this thread. Oftentimes, sometimes it's very hard to find in a section the common thread. Um, but as I was looking through this particular passage, which is actually part of a larger passage that we've got another message on, um, even after today, of a conversation Paul is having with the church, I was looking for a particular thread that would kind of tie everything together. And, and it jumped out at me as I saw this passage from an, a, a book on marriage by John Piper called This Momentary Mar- Marriage. Our, our text today isn't really about marriage, but here, here's something Paul says about marriage that's really going to be able to, I think, thematically help us tie what's going on here today together. He says this about marriages. If we make secondary things primary, they cease to be secondary and become idolatrous. If we make secondary things primary, they cease to be secondary and become idolatrous. And Piper is talking about marriage. He's making the case that our marriages are not served when we make finding happiness in our marriages more important than treasuring and following Jesus. It's easy to say not to do that, but he's talking about not giving up that fight to make Jesus central and to make marriage secondary to Jesus. But failing to pursue making Jesus central to marriage, Piper argues, will be destructive both to our relationship with God and ironically to our relationship with our spouse. So, in other words, if we put Jesus, if we try to make Jesus central in our, in our first treasure, it won't just help our relationship with the Lord, it'll help our relationship with our spouse. But really, more broadly speaking, Piper's laying down this simple spiritual principle that when you put second and third and fourth and 78 things first, you cannot avoid getting into trouble with God. When we take anything, even good things that God gives us, and place them above him and his gospel and his call in our lives, we cannot help but reap difficulties. And, and this is a challenge for us every single day, right? As we struggle to take up the cross daily that Jesus calls us to and follow him, trusting his promise that if we give ourselves to him, his yoke will be easy and his burden will be light. That's a, that's a daily struggle to put him first. And this dynamic of making secondary things and tertiary things and 78 things stand in front of what should be primary is is probably a good way to describe how the Corinthians got into the trouble that we've been talking about in the series so far. If you recall that in the situation Paul's been addressing for the last few chapters through Andrew's and mine messages, they've taken the good things that God's given them in the leaders that he's brought to them these godly leaders that they'd encountered. And, and they'd essentially made the leaders, and really more specifically, their oratory skills, their ability to speak, the, the, the style of their speaking, the power of their, of their speeches. They, they've made those things bigger than the message of God and his gospel that they're bringing. And so Paul's trying to tell them again and again through these, through these chapters, and he's, it's, it's what he's on point about again today in this chapter. He's trying to tell this church, Jesus and his gospel, they are central. They are primary. You have to fight to keep them central. You have to fight to keep them primary and not let secondary things come in. And God has wired us as his children to be fueled, to run on a passion for him and his truth above and before all other things. And when we stop pursuing that, when we stop fighting for that, we start to break down 
and like cars that run on fumes. We just don't move the way we're supposed to move. And so today, as we walk through the situation in Corinth again that they're struggling with, my hope and prayer is that you and I would not only see the dangers of losing sight of Jesus to lesser things, but we'd also be wooed again by the rewards of pursuing him above all things, whether it be in our marriages or in our jobs or in our lives as sons and daughters and students or or in our church. And that's something that is impossible, as we'll see in this text. It's impossible for me to achieve by any you know, preaching smith I'm trying to do today. The, the very passage we're going to talk about will testify to my inability to do anything of any value apart from God working. And your inability to, to, to grow in any good way apart from God working. So, but, but he's gracious. He's kind. He brought us here together to meet us in his word. It's why he brought us into this very room. To be able to speak to us and to be able to grow us. So let's ask him to do what he wants to do. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, you died 2,000 years ago and you rose from the grave three days later so that on this day we might know that we have unstoppable access to your Father so that we might know that today nothing can close the door that you have opened through your death and resurrection. And so we go to your father and we come to our father in your name. And now, father, I address you in the name of Jesus, the only name by which I or anyone in this room has the right to call you father. But because of Jesus, we do call you father. And we pray that in the name of Jesus, you would pour out your Holy Spirit heavy on us today. And work through these passages. Protect my words, Lord. Help me to honor your word. And where I will be fallible, Lord, work your work around that, despite me, to strengthen your people. So that today, Lord God, we would meet with you and be changed by you as as, as I need so much to hear from you. Not just words in the air and that hit my eardrums. I need to hear from you with the The inner man in my deep heart, I need to meet with you and hear from you and see you. And so does every person in this room. And only your Holy Spirit can do that for us. We thank you that Jesus died and rose, that we might have your spirit and have your help today. And in his name we pray. Amen. So we're going to try to walk through all of chapter three today, and it's not so short. So rather than like read the whole chapter at once, I'm going to read a section at a time and try to unpack it in a way that's hopefully helpful. And we're going to start with the first section. I've titled the first section groupies of groupies and strife of groupies and strife. Starting in verse one of chapter three, I'll read through four. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? Paul had been explaining in the previous chapter, the last time we met in this book, 
that every believer who's been has been given the amazing gift of the Holy Spirit through which every believer can perceive and treasure Christ and his life changing gospel and is now awake and alive to spiritual truth. But now he says to this church, even though you have the Holy Spirit, you are not acting like Holy Spirit filled people. You're acting just like the world. When he calls them people of the flesh, he doesn't mean they're not saved. In the Greek, the construction makes it clear. He's saying you're, you're marked by fleshliness, not you are of the flesh. They are infants in Christ still, though they should be more mature, he says. But what they're doing is acting just like the world. They're putting their treasure in things they should not be treasuring above Jesus Christ. In this case, who's better? Who's more stylistically the pleasing speaker? And you're, you're making, he says to them, you're making that so central to your heart that you're biting and fighting and warring against each other. And therefore, it's obvious that there's all this biting, there's warring in each other, that, that you're not walking with Jesus as you should. And look, this is important. They weren't quarreling because Paul was preaching truth. And Apollo was preaching heresy, right? That would be worth a holy disagreement, wouldn't it? And, and an attempt to deal lovingly and honestly with straying brothers and sisters. No, it, it wasn't an issue of God's truth that they were, they were dividing over. All these teachers were godly and orthodox. It was this secondary issue we've talked about before of style and perhaps charisma and stature and personality that was coming out differently in different preachers. You know, when I was in high school, I was in a rock band. There were four of us and, and three of us in, in the rock band literally prided ourselves on the music we played. We, we identified ourselves really. If I can think of anything that I felt like I identified myself with in high school, it was this rock band and the kind of music we played. And three of us in the band were cool guys and we loved progressive rock like U2 and R.E.M. and the police. And, and I asked Andrew if this would be okay. So if this isn't okay, he has to share the blame with, with me on this one. But, but here's a picture of us. And I can't remember which band we, we are. Okay. So, okay. Wait, that's you two right there. And that's the band I was in. And that's me. I'm like 15 years old. And that's Matt. And that's Ken. And that's Jeff. And there's Bono and Ed. So I, I, I'm just putting these pictures next to each other because that's how hung up we are finding our identity in, in the rock and roll scene and being just like, who were literally our idols, you know, th this rock band. But there was one guy in this band who didn't like the music we liked. He was in our band and we divided with him. He liked hair bands and metal bands. He liked like Van Halen and these other bands. And we thought we were so cool. And so we, we really, we used this poor guy to play the music and we made him play the music we liked. We let him play like one song out of a hundred, you know, that he wanted to play. But we didn't really befriend him. We just separated ourselves with him and we kind of leveraged his gifts, but left him behind as a person. We made him play our songs, but we devalued him as a human being because we didn't think his music choices reflected wisdom and beauty and worth. Because that's where we identified ourselves in high school. That was horrible. But we were all unsaved teenagers. We weren't unified in Jesus and his gospel. Thank you for taking that picture away. We were unified in being cool and in the right kind of music. And that's about what you'd expect from an unregenerate kid, right? To find their identity in something like music and being popular. But, but now, Paul's saying, that's essentially what's going on in Corinth, Paul says. You're acting just like the world. 
You're not finding your identity in Jesus and who he is. You're finding your identity in secondary things. Styles of speakers and their great stature and their great popularity is becoming your identifying marker. There's nothing wrong necessarily with having a good speaking power. We talked about Paul's ability to to speak like the best of them last time when it was useful for the gospel. But they'd taken this secondary thing and they'd made it primary. And it had displaced Jesus and his gospel in their lives. And that's, Paul's just saying, you should know better. You're acting just like the world. And what's worse, you should know better. The world can't do better, but you can because of Jesus. So I, you know, as I was trying to figure out in my heart what was the application, it just, it came to me that just we, we, we just need to understand and treasure as a church that we have a unity in Jesus that is bigger than anything that might separate us. Jesus has purchased us. He has given us his one spirit. And that, that has to look like something here. But like Corinth, we're tempted to put secondary things in between our unity in Christ. Now, how might you be tempted in your life to separate yourselves from those that Jesus has made you one with? By secondary things. If you're younger in here and you're a teen, like I was one day, long, long ago, it, it might be the clothes you wear. It might be how good looking or popular we think you think you are, you think your peers are. Or you might be afraid of those things because you don't think your clothes are cool. You don't think you're very good looking. And so you, you, you mark yourself off either in pride because you identify with those things or you, you kind of despise yourself because you don't have those things the way you want. Well, Jesus wants to be your identity. He wants to be your hope. He, he wants to be bigger than those things. So that not only are you to have hope that doesn't go away with, with whether your face looks okay or whether your clothes look okay, but that you can love those people who aren't as cool as you if you're one of the cool ones. There are other things that involve all of us, right? Maybe it's personality. It's such a gift to have a natural affinity for certain people who share your sense of humor, your intelligence, or just the way that you seem to get certain things in common. But if we let that keep us from serving and loving one another, people who don't seem like us in the church, who might be more awkward or, or might not share those things that we love about others, if, if we let that keep us from serving or befriending those people, it can put secondary things in front of Jesus. And we have such an opportunity in this world to express the beauty and the difference of a church unified around Jesus. Because increasingly we live in a world of outrage, don't we? People are outraged so easily all around us. Social media, it helps us get all our opinions out there for all the world to hear. We live in a nation that is dividing into factions like it perhaps it hasn't in a long, long time. This, the flag controversy, it's just like a deeper collision between political ideologies of varying degrees that have been festering under the surface without the gospel to mediate any hope. And notice how the world, like with this flag controversy, it sets people up for, for just like a losing battle no matter how you see it. It's like here are your choices in the flag controversy. If you kneel, you dishonor veterans and their sacrifice. If you stand, you don't care about racial injustice. Right? Like, those are your choices. You either don't care about veterans or you don't care about racism. Well, listen, Satan does not care if you stand or you kneel. Just as long as you hate someone who does the opposite and you think yourself superior for your choice. 
And he can do the same thing in the church. In Revelation, he's called the accuser of the brethren who accuses us night and day before the Father. And he can still work that same thing in our souls about each other. Helping us develop accusations against each other and pride against each other. But while the enemy of our souls wants to divide us for the love of strife, spirit-filled people are able to love each other through complex issues. They should be able to see the folly and boasting in their own superior position. And they should be able to see the beauty in expressing Jesus' love and seeking to listen, understand, and care for the other person for the sake of the gospel. We should recognize that, as Paul did, where there's strife, where there's jealousy, where there's division, something is seriously wrong, regardless of where we stand on the issues. We might have disagreements, we might need to share concerns, but we're called to plead with God's grace so that we can engage these things in a way that testifies, testifies to our own need for God's forgiveness and our own desire to be forgiving people. Recently, there's an article on marriage and desiring God. And I loved what it said. It was, it was this guy saying that as he thought about 10 years of marriage, he considered the, the biggest issues for him in marriage, the, the, rather the, the biggest texts for him in marriage, weren't the texts on headship and submission or roles. Though those are imperative texts, they're essential texts. It, it was this text from Ephesians 4. That really, really got him. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And this was the one that gripped his heart. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And that, that passage has just been, I feel like that word tender hearted has been fighting in my heart for a long time. And as I've processed through things in my life, things in the church, things in my family, things, I think there's, there's nothing I wish for more than, than being able to deal with, with difficulties and challenging situations and relationships. There's nothing I could wish more for than, than to be able to have a tender heart when it's difficult to have a tender heart. And there's nothing I'm more glad about when I look back over challenges and relationships than when God's grace has allowed me to, in spite of a difficult situation, have a tender heart. Having a tender heart has rescued me from terrible situations and relationships, and not having a terrible heart has gotten me in all kinds of troubles in relationships. And I think that's true for for all of us. Wherever it is, in your homes, at work, at school, in this church. There's something about tenderness that I think is so beautiful. No one deserves tenderness. We, we all deserve justice. And if we know our Bibles, we know that that justice means we deserve punishment. We deserve wrath. We deserve separation from God and hell for eternity. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we're children of wrath. No one deserves tenderness. Nobody you know in your family, in this church, deserves tenderness. And do you know what else? 
No one can survive without tenderness. Nobody can make it. Life doesn't work. Nobody deserves mercy. It's not something that we should get. We should get justice and punishment. No one can survive without mercy. Not from God, and and, and we need it from each other. Coming back to the text, Paul sees to help this dividing church by showing just how secondary the issues that are dividing them really are when compared to the primary issue of Jesus Christ. He goes on, he's, he's going to really highlight what's primary and really try to help them see what should be secondary in their minds. Verse 5 through verse 9. What then is Apollo? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollo watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul is saying, why are you getting so wrapped up in these teachings? In these, in, rather, in these teachers' personalities and their styles and their charismas. You're missing the only one who matters. It's so ridiculous. And using an agricultural analogy of farming and growth, he explains, whatever these teachers did for you, whatever I did for you, if it's truly any good, it all comes from one place, your faithful God. Paul means this so deeply, he says, in a sense, the human leader is nothing. Nothing. God is everything. Now, this doesn't mean Paul doesn't value church leadership. No, in every church, in in Acts, we see Paul going from church to church or telling others to go to church and church, Timothy and Titus, and set up elder teams in every church. He really cared about leadership. He instructed Timothy to lead the church. And he told Timothy to do it with all authority of God's word. He told Timothy, don't let older folks look down on you because you're so young. It can be uncomfortable for preachers to note this, but in several places in the Bible, the scriptures call members to honor their leaders, to follow their leadership as long as it honors the Lord. But, but Paul, so he's not trashing leadership. But what he is saying is don't dare confuse the imperfect, fallible means with the perfect, infallible source. That's just moving towards idolatry. Don't confuse the genius artist that God is with the simple, crude instruments he uses in people. That's foolishness. Don't make what is secondary your leader's primary, God and Jesus. The best pastor, the best elder in history, the best small group leader, the best women's Bible study leader you've ever had is simply an imperfect, broken vessel for a perfect God to use, if he chooses. God has ever, always, and only been the only sole source of all your spiritual progress. He might use John Piper. He's used John Piper in my life a lot, but he doesn't need John Piper. I mean, it's, it's amazing when sometimes I think about how hung up I can get on certain people like John Piper. I spent many, many years being born again and growing as a Christian before I'd read one of John Piper's words. Can you believe it? God had other people to use. He had his Holy Spirit. He used Charles Stanley. He used Tony Evans. He used my best friend Ken in that rock band with me, the one with the sunglasses, to lead me to Jesus. But it was him. It was always ever and only him, right? So Paul is saying to you and to me, don't put your hope in people, the hope that only God deserves. 
I remember realizing this in a most humbling way as a pastor when I was at my last church in Virginia Beach. I mentioned this at the care group leaders meeting last week. Some of you guys, this is old news too, but I was back there with Jen for a visit during a year away in study. So I was at pastor's college here in Gaithersburg. We were back at that church just to spend some time there and, and, and just to spend a weekend there back at our home church. And, and it looked at that point, we, we knew that we were very unlikely going to be able to return to that church. We were going to have to go somewhere else. And, and I just, I looked at all of these folks. I was uh, leading the singles ministry. I had been leading the singles ministry. I looked at all these people that I just loved and I poured into and I served and I said, Lord, how can it be that you would take me from these people? I love these people. I've cared for them. And it was just as if God said right back to me in his tender but fatherly, strong way, Albert, do you think I need you? I looked at all, there was a beautiful big sanctuary, awesome church, awesome stage, you know, it, all these people, they were young and cool and hip, and I was like, they liked me, and it was, the single ministry was really grooving, and God's just like, I don't need you. I'm not going to bring you back here. It was really humbling. Every pastor, every small group leader is very expendable. Jesus is not. And if I could for a moment, I think this has some bearing for our present challenge as a church. So we're seeing more change in our elder team as Andrew steps off in a few weeks and we potentially seek a new pastor here. Andrew is my best friend here. And he is one of the most faithful men of God I've ever met. But I have to remember, and you have to remember, while he may be stepping off our team, and Andrew would be the first person to tell you this, Jesus is not. And while we're in the early stages of looking for a possible interim senior pastor, that person, should we find them, is not going to be our salvation. Only Jesus is. And he's here already. We don't need a search team committee to find a Messiah. Thank God. (laughs) And he is where our hope is to be. And thank God that because of Jesus' death for our sins and because of the peace that he's made with God for us, he is our ever faithful and unstoppable hope right now, regardless of who you've got on your leadership team at your church. If Jesus is there, he is what you need. And he will be faithful to you. By all means, encourage your leaders. We're going to have a great opportunity to honor Andrew uh, in a couple of weeks. And, and by all means, please pray for your leaders. But what will keep you from idolatry when you are blessed by your leaders? Or what will keep you from despair when you are not blessed by your leaders? Is to remember who the source of any good that comes to you truly is. It's not your leaders. Let me just say that again. What will keep you from idolatry when you're blessed by your leaders? And what will keep you from despair when you are not blessed by your leaders? is to remember who the source of any good that comes to you truly is. John Piper (laughs) says it really well. Well, he's just a guy that I just really like, but he's used by God and he in himself is nothing, but he says some good things. Well, we'll see. So John Piper says it really well. We may certainly be thankful for the copper pipes in our house, But what gives us life and refreshment is the water that comes out of the spigot. The waiter may be courteous and winsome or crabby and inattentive. 
But if the food gives life and joy, that ultimately, that ultimately is what counts. Now Paul pivots. We're going to move on from this section. He pivots from using agricultural analogies to using a building analogies. He exhorts the church in a new way. Not to lose what is primary for what is secondary. Not to replace Jesus and his gospel with something else. So section two. Built to last or built to burn. Da, 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 da. That's an inflammatory title. No pun intended. Verse 10 through 15. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver, precious stones, wood, hay or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is a, a very, very thick and rich section of scripture with a lot of potential entailments about what happens in the afterlife. What Paul is basically saying, though, in this context is, is not only are leaders simply vessels for God who can do nothing in themselves, they actually have to be careful that they don't build foolishly because God's going to judge their works on the last day. And in this passage, notice, Paul doesn't name the leader specifically anymore. There's no clear... Po- so there's this possibility, this real possibility, that he's now expanding his exhortation to apply to everybody in the church when he says, let each one take care how he builds. Here Paul says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The only foundation for any soul and any group of souls that make up a church is Jesus Christ uniting himself with that soul and that group through the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's the foundation. Flooding alert? Amber alert? We sure that's an Amber Alert? Okay. Well, let's, let's just take a second to pray. Lord, you know the details of this situation. Thank you so much for the Amber Alert system. We pray that this message would go far and wide to the right people who need to hear. We thank you that there are probably a ton of churches praying right now this moment. And we just pray that you would rescue and, and make sure this, this little person is safe and found, Lord. And please give peace to their loved ones right now who are worried about them. Please comfort them. Please comfort them and rescue. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, someone's still got a phone going. If you guys can... So as we were saying, the only foundation for any soul and any church of souls is Jesus Christ uniting himself with that group through the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul in this passage reminds us that born again believers, including leaders in the church, will be judged by God at the end of the age. 
And on that day of judgment, according to whether they have built the church with God's truth and God's values in God's ways or fleshly ways, God will judge them. And this isn't an issue of salvation for these people. That's one of the most interesting things that introduces this category we don't often talk a lot about, which is rewards. That, that God will give rewards to us on the last day. And some of us, because of the way we've lived and the way we've been faithful, we will have more rewards than other people. And I wish I could tell you this isn't in the Bible, but it's very much in the Bible. There are going to be different rewards according to how we've stewarded the gifts he's given us and the opportunities he's given us. And it's not an issue of, of salvation. He says, even the person who has no reward because all they've done is lived after they've been a believer, they've built with hay and stubble, which are symbols for building with not godly things, not things that last on, on top of the foundation of Christ. They'll still be saved, he says, but as through fire, that means as through this testing, like running from a building. D.A. Carson challenges church using this passage to not make secondary things primary in building the church and building on top of the gospel. Here's what he says. This is a great quote. It's, I think it's going to be up there. And it's fairly long, but I think it's really rich. It is possible to build the church with such shoddy materials that at the last day you have nothing to show for your labor. People may come, feel helped, join in corporate worship, serve on committees, teach Sunday school classes, bring their friends, enjoying fellowship, raise funds, participate in counseling sessions and self-help groups, but still not really know the Lord. If the church is being built with large portions of charm, personality, easy oratory, positive thinking, managerial skills, powerful and emotional experiences, and people smarts, but without the repeated, passionate, spirit-anointed proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, we may be winning more adherents than converts. Inherents should say adherents. Just people who like us. People who sign up for the football team that we sign up for. Rather than people who are regenerated. And just so we don't misunderstand, Carson goes on. Not for a moment am I suggesting that, say, managerial skills are unnecessary. Oh, they are necessary. Or that basic people skills are merely optional. But the fundamental, non-negotiable, that without which the church is no longer the church, is the gospel. God's folly. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In town, I recently saw this on a beautiful, beautiful banner on the side of a church building. And I'm not trying to pick on this church, but I, I just think it illustrates this point really well. And the banner said this, be the church. Be the church. And here's what followed. Protect the environment. Wait a second. That's a good thing, right? Depending on what that can mean. Care for the poor. Who's going to argue with that? Embrace diversity. If it means love all people, we don't necessarily tolerate all things. We don't know what all goes into that, but certainly racial diversity should be absolutely embraced. Oh, reject racism. Right? I want to do that. Forgive often. Well, we all want to forgive often. Love God. First commandment. Fight for the powerless. Care for the weak and the poor. Share earthly and spiritual resources and enjoy this life. That was the church. That's how you be the church on that banner. 
They're certainly good in all these ideas. But folks, if the authors of that statement are contending that that is a complete description of the church, that is a nice sounding damnable lie. What is tragically and heretically missing in that description is the most important element of what it means to be a church. Jesus Christ and him crucified. If that banner represents a church, then no one will ever be saved from hell through it. Because the offense of the cross of Christ has been erased from its DNA. If that is a church, then the Holy Spirit cannot bring resurrection life through it. Because the resurrection of life of Christ will never be proclaimed. Rather, they will be ashamed of the resurrection of Christ. And it's, it, it is through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that it entails that a church is born. And it is through holding on to this gospel with all of its comforts and with all of its calls upon our lives that a church survives. The church of Jesus Christ is built on and sustained by the truth of Jesus Christ, whose body and blood has been offered for the sins of mankind and for that church. The church is built on the truth that he has risen from the dead on the third day so that his Holy Spirit would come into our lives and make us new with that same resurrection life. So that by his power, we might not live for ourselves, but by him who gave himself for us. So, listen, I hope, don't hear what I'm not saying. I hope that we get our own building someday. I really do. I know our setup crew really does. I know many families really do. But if we never get a building, we can still build his church. Because we have his gospel and we have his Holy Spirit. And that is what makes a church. That is primary. Buildings and dry ice and great lighting is secondary. And we have to be careful that we don't give ourselves to the idolatry of secondary things as we seek to build this church. But we keep primary the first thing of Jesus Christ crucified for us. And we offer that to the lost. And we offer that again and again to each other to help us keep going, keep believing, keep hoping in his righteousness and not our own ability to make it through. A concrete building with nice windows, offices, a beautiful digital soundboard. Glenn, would you like a digital soundboard? I would. Sunday school classes that we don't have to set up. Sunday school, could you imagine? Ministry that can happen there. Children's ministry classrooms we don't have to redo. That would be fabulous. That is completely secondary. To what makes a church a church. And to what allows the gospel to thrive. And if we make secondary things primary. And we lose hold of what is primary. Which is Jesus Christ given for you. So that you could be forgiven. And that so you could be a forgiver. That that message that you are forgiven to be a forgiver. Is, is pouring out of your heart. That's what makes a church. We were planted by Covenant Life Church, I don't know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Covenant Life Church was started in 1981, Deb. They had had no building, right? They had a school. They had to do all the stuff that we have to do. 
But somehow the Holy Spirit worked to get them a building. <laughs> I mean, I'm just kidding. He did, though, probably, we hope. But, but my point is, there was something there before they had all the infrastructure, before they had the perfect polity, before they had the perfect committees. There was something there. It was the gospel. It was the Holy Spirit working in people's lives, telling them again and again, they're forgiven, they're righteous in Christ, so that they could in turn give hope to their brothers and sisters in the church to keep going on and to tell other people around them who are going to hell that Jesus Christ offers them salvation and righteousness. The Holy Spirit was working through those things, through those primary things before they had so many of the secondary things that are good and helpful. And I'm not against. But it was those primary things that built that church. Last section, the temple of God. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they're futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollo or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Paul is proclaiming the astounding and beautiful truth of what we are, whether we have a digital soundboard in a building or not. Concrete buildings are not the buildings he's talking about. He's saying, you people gathered together in the name of Jesus, seeking to serve one another in the name of Jesus, believing in Jesus, you are God's temple. That's God's temple. That's the temple God cares about. That's the building God cares about. And speaking to these factions earlier that we started with, and he's been speaking to the whole, he's basically just saying to them, if, if you keep putting your hope in these little groups that you have, these little idols of these different leaders, Apollos and Paul and Cephas, this secondary thing of speaking and oratory skills, he's saying you're just, you're just going to keep dividing each other. You're just going to keep biting and devouring each other. And God's not going to stand for that, he says. So he gives this warning. God will answer that. He will, he will destroy those whom God's, who destroy God's people. And I don't, I don't think that we're experiencing that kind of factionalism in this church. I don't, I don't want to pretend that I'm trying to send some hidden message. We have disagreements here, but I, I don't believe that, I believe there's a lot of attempts in, in our church for people who are trying to do the best they can to see what's right. And there, we're having discussions and disagreements about that. But I don't think there's this surplus of attempts to factionalize us. But there is this implicit warning, I think, there for me, certainly, for all of us, to take care that we don't tear down each other with, with foolish thinking that puts secondary things above Jesus, puts secondary issues in front of the unity that we have in Jesus. 
that we're forgiven people called to forgive. And that we work hard to be tender-hearted towards each other. That when we're hurt by each other, if we can't get over it with God, we work hard to go to our brothers and sisters, not with a spirit of justice and vengeance, but with a spirit that says, hey, I want to reconcile with you. I, I want to get off the righteousness scale and I want to get on the tenderness scale. God's already done the righteousness, justice stuff on the cross. I, I don't need to be doing that with my brothers and sisters. We don't need to be doing that with each other trying to get our justice and our righteousness out of each other. Jesus took care of that. He wants us to be tender-hearted now, forgiving each other, working towards forgiveness. That's what he's calling me to do and to stop being on the righteousness train. And I need a lot of help from God to do that because I'm given to the... I was talking with Greg this week, like in a nice way. Albert, you have a prophetic gift. You know, prophetic people are concerned for God's righteous and holy things. And that's true. Many people are wired like that. But that kind of thing has to be tempered with the fact that Jesus has taken care of the righteousness issue. What he's calling us to now is the reconciliation issues and the tenderness issues. If I could put it in those ways. Another thing I just want to just repeat from this passage. Paul's reminding us at the end of this passage of the great inheritance we have in Christ. Look at verse 21. Let no one boast in men. Why? For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollo or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Listen to the, the plenty supply that's implicit in this. Are they feeling like they have everything? No, they're struggling to get along. But Paul is saying, no, you have everything. Part of your issue is you're not believing that you have everything. And so you're scavenging for your little corner of your little piece of the thing. But, but listen, you ha- God will give you everything you need to live for him. If you give yourself to his purposes, God's going to supply you with everything. You have everything. And when you fractionalize yourself, you... You don't see that you, you know, you guys who love Cephas, you don't realize that Apollo belongs to you too. You get all of him. I was trying to think about an application in my own heart for this. I, I was, I went to pastor's college in Sovereign Grace Ministries and leaving Sovereign Grace Ministries was a heartbreaker for me. And I, I know there are different things and different issues and I don't want to get into all that. But I just want to say on a relational level, some of my best friends are in Sovereign Grace. Some of the people that I, I went to school with, young guys that I came up in the ministry with, to some degree there are. It was just really hard for me relationally to, to break up with those guys, so to speak, in terms of a formal affiliation. As I read this passage, I was reminded, those guys belong to me. I belong to them. Whether I'm in Sovereign Grace or I'm in Advance or I'm in Acts 29 or I'm in the Presbyterian Church in America, Tim Keller is mine. He's mine. And if God, if God needs me to get some Tim Keller in my life, God's going to do it. He'll get me my Tim Keller portion that I need. <laughs> Jerry Bridges belongs to me. He's in heaven now, but he's mine. I don't have to become a navigator guy to get Jerry Bridges. He belongs to me already. We're already one in Christ. Redemption City Church is meeting later this evening. Bliss Spillar is the pastor there. Bliss Spillar, if you're listening, you are mine. <laughs> you belong to me. I belong to you. We belong to each other. And what's, what's, what's involved here is this implicit promise. That a father saying, you don't have to scrounge and fight and divide 
for your territory and your turf. I'm giving you all things in Jesus. All things that you need will be provided for you. If you will trust me and if you will seek me, I'm here right now. I will give you what you need. The storm looks crazy. The waves look high. I'm in the boat with you. If Andrew leaves us in a month, Jesus Christ is here. If the budget, I have to go work at Walmart in a year, (laughs) Jesus Christ is here. How often does does something in a, a resource of God get taken away from you? And Walmart isn't, I hope that was, that was no slam in Walmart. I'm just, I got to be so careful. I can be such a bonehead with my sense of humor. But my point is, God is your source. And he is here. And he knows where you are. And he will provide what you need today and every day. He is the source of for this church, not any person, not any leader, not any committee. He is. So all that we do looking for those things and trying to build those things, God calls us to do those things from a posture of belief that he's going to take care of us. He's going to be good to us. And do you know what that will do if we are posturing ourselves with that belief that he will be good to us and he will take care of us? It will turn down fear, anxiety, bickering, division, anger, strife, because we're just with our dad. We don't know what he's exactly what he's going to do with us today, but we're with our dad. We don't have to fight about what might appear on the kitchen table in, in the next hour of lunch because we look behind us and there's like a, a 5,000 pound refrigerator. <laughs> He's just going to walk back to the refrigerator and get whatever is best suited for us and bring it and put it on the table. We don't know exactly yet what it's going to be. But he's going to take care of it because he's faithful. He's our dad. And we honor him when we believe that. And when we freak out and start biting on each other, it says we're not trusting him as much. That is not to say that there aren't things to talk about or don't hear me saying there aren't disagreements to work out and all that stuff. There are, but when we're trusting in God, we can do that from such a better place. That God is our, our Father. He's made good to us. Well, it's 11.43 and I've gone over. So let's pray and, uh, and then we'll just dismiss because we've got to relieve those. Debbie is saying no. <laughs> Um, why don't we ask the band to come up and then uh, whoever can stay can just stay and, and, and worship and whoever needs to get their kids from CM, please feel free to do that. I'm going to pray for us real quick. Lord, please have mercy on me for going over. Um, I just pray, Lord God, that you bless the rest of our day today. I pray that you bless these words to the hearts of your people, to my heart. Lord, do the work that only you can do that I cannot do, and I leave it to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.